On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Bill Kelly today. We are talking about the settlement the federal government and First Nations have come to $40 billion, $20 billion to victims and $20 billion to services to people who were removed from their homes over the last 30 or so years, right up to the present time. We're going to talk about that. Schools, remote schooling, kids back online. Is this really that bad? We're going to talk about whether we should be concerned about this, not concerned, kind of concerned. We'll get to that. And I know it's only January. I know there's snow outside. I know it's cold, but we're talking about cottages because if you're thinking of a cottage this summer, this is the time to think about a cottage this summer. I know that was repetitive, but it's true. Stick around. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You may have read, you may have heard, you may have seen something about the fact that an agreement has now been reached between the federal government and First Nations people for, there's a number of things involved in this, but perhaps the, the headline or the largest one is for removing children from their homes between 1991 and the present and, um, putting them in foster homes or wherever else, uh, $40 billion is going to now be paid out. $20 billion to the children and their caregivers. I, I think I read the number was somewhere in the neighborhood of 115,000 of them. And another $20 billion is going to go to improving First Nations social services, ostensibly to prevent this from ever happening again. Uh, this is the end result of the largest class action lawsuit in Canadian history. Here's what Patty Haidu, the Minister of Indigenous Services, had to say about it yesterday. Societies that place their children first are the strongest, most resilient, and most prosperous. This new path puts First Nations children first to help them thrive and grow, surrounded by their cultures and their loved ones. It provides a new path for community wellness and success. It is an investment in the future of our country. Dr. Dawn Lavelle-Harvard is director at the First People's House of Learning at Trent University. She joins us now. Uh, Dr. Lavelle-Harvard, thank you for the time today. Oh, you're very welcome. What was your take on what happened yesterday? We have to say that it literally, it's about time. And I think, you know, the Trudeau government had spent a lot of time saying that they were appealing this ruling because, you know, they wanted a situation where they could potentially provide more, that they you know, didn't want to be held to just the, the minimum of what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal had awarded. And so this is a really positive step forward in actually starting to walk the talk. And they, if this comes through, the one challenge is that it has said that, you know, that this is still an agreement in principle, but I think for the agreement in principle, this shows all the signs of doing the right thing, which is what we wanted is providing that compensation to the children and their families as a recognition of their basic human rights, their basic humanity, but at the same time, you know, ensuring that they provide enough funding for the provision of proper services so that we don't have future generations of children going through this same thing. Were you buying the argument that the appeal attempts and the fighting it in court and everything was to help you get more I mean, it, it sounds pretty uh, contradictory to, I mean, were, were you thinking, oh, great, they're fighting this so they can give us more? Or were you thinking, no, they're fighting this so they can give us a lot less? Well, it, it, it was an absurd argument, and I don't think anybody believed it, because the challenge is, if you look at this the same as a court-ordered child support payment, and if the court orders somebody to pay a minimum amount based on the child support tables, to say that, well, I was happy to pay that, but I was taking it to court so that I could provide additional. Nobody is preventing anybody from <laughs> providing additional. I mean, it's you go ahead and you follow your court order and you pay what's ordered, and then if you want to do additional, then that's a wonderful thing. But you don't argue and you don't go to court for that. So, yeah, I, I don't think anybody was buying it. So I think this agreement now shows uh, a real about face from the government and it's about time that they stopped wasting millions of dollars fighting against Indigenous, against First Nations children mm. in the courts and actually start to use those resources to improve the lives and improve the system so that, you know, those children have a chance at a proper future. Uh, you're being very kind, I think, by saying that, you know, they, they now want to, they can do more or whatever, because I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people are probably pretty cynical about this, that this deal was set, was, was reached. Yes. And that, and that's fine. That's great. Uh, but it was only at the last moment after the appeal process had dried up. So to somehow trumpet a 
great triumph for the government sounds, a, a, does it not sound a little hollow? Well, it is. It, it's, you know, absolutely. They didn't do it before they had to. The fact that they wasted millions of dollars and how many months, years, you know, fighting against this. Um, it's, yeah, we, we need not celebrate too much when people finally do the right thing because they're forced to. It's, it's, it is kind of a minimum standard. I guess for First Nations children and families, though, that, you know, thank goodness it's about time they stopped fighting this. And hopefully there is, now that they're being forced to, there is hopefully some commitment that they are going to do this in good faith. And one of the things that we really want to see is that this doesn't become just a one-time, you know, payout because it was ordered, but that the additional dollars that are, you know, to improve the system, that there also be some kind of ongoing support for those who were damaged, who were traumatized by their time in the system to access therapy, to access counseling over those years to come. Because $40,000, that's that's not going to be, how does that help with the healing in terms of address, addressing the mental health concerns over those next years, those next decades? Well, I mean, that's a great question you raise because, um, you know, I was going to say, what does the money mean? You can't, you can't undo the past, but what does a payout, what does a $40,000, and that's the, I think the minimum amount, it could be more per person, but what does that money mean to, to the people who are going to get it? Well, and I think that's the thing where for families and for communities, it's symbolic. It was, you know, something that is a symbol of, it, it is restitution, and absolutely, there's no way that $40,000 can repay or, or make up for a childhood that was taken away, a bond with family that was taken away, but because that was the maximum allowed by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, it's important that that be paid as a, a sign of, of respecting the basic human rights of First Nations children, that you know it is a commitment, it is a a sign that First Nations children do have basic human rights in this country and that they can be defended and that they should be respected. So it's an important symbol in that way. But absolutely, that $40,000 isn't going to return that childhood and it isn't going to help with the healing. And I think that's where we really need to see the effort. I know some uh, previous with victim services, they have situations where there's a significant amount over and above the initial amount awarded that is put in trust that, you know, is made available for ongoing counseling and therapy. And I think that kind of thing is going to be really critical for starting the healing, for helping to improve people's lives. To your understanding, and you may not know this, I I don't know if we know this completely yet, but I'll ask you anyway, um, who's going to get money from this? Is it going to be every child who was taken from their home and placed in foster care during the prescribed period, which I think 91 until the present? Is it every single child or is it based on a case-by-case basis for those who were taken away improperly? So I think from what I understand is that those children who were taken away um, for, you know, what was called neglect, um, but which is actually poverty, you know, children who are in families where they can't provide proper housing, where they can't provide proper meals and clothing for their children. You know, when the child welfare's response was to just remove the children from the family rather than support the family, those families are, are going to be getting restitution here. The families where children were taken away because of abuse, um, are not included in this because that's obviously that's a, that's a completely different thing and that's not what this case was about. This was about simply apprehending Indigenous children and removing them from families for reasons of poverty, which you know again ultimately tie back to governments who failed to provide the basic necessities of life in First Nations in terms of you know clean water. How many children were taken away because mm-hmm. you know their parents didn't have basic sanitation in their home? Yeah, and I, and I appreciate the clarification because I think that, you know, if, if it was a blanket statement that, listen, everyone who was taken away regardless of circumstances gets something, that seems to be not exactly right. Your description makes a lot more sense that if it's, you know, if it's an abuse situation, parents or whoever don't get a payout. But th- th- what you describe is much more sensible. Um what will this, what will this fix things? I mean, and I'm talking mentally, emotionally, or even physically on reserves or other places. Will this fix things, this money? No, absolutely not. You know, to your point, just, just giving somebody a check doesn't fix a, a, you know, adverse child experience that, that lifetime, that, that connection from the family being taken away. 
that's going to require long-term commitment to healing. And I think that's why even the conversation we had about the residential school experiences, you know, the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, there needs to be a commitment to provide financial support for these people to be able to access long-term counseling, therapy, treatment, to be able to, to actually, like you said, to change things, to fix things, to improve situations, because that's what's really going to make a difference. And that's why the additional $20 billion, you know, we're really hoping to see that you know, there is amounts earmarked, that there is commitment to providing long-term therapy, long-term support for the victims of this system. And when I asked that question, I, I was in, I was thinking of including that. I wasn't clear, but when you include the twenty billion for the system, and the money for individuals, I mean that theoretically, potentially, could be a significant infusion of cash into places that have been very poor before. Are you optimistic that that will allow some of these places to have a better standard of living that will really improve something tangibly? for people. I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but you can't undo a childhood, but tangibly could this make a difference going forward? <laughs> um, it's, there's actually a real danger um, with, with these kinds of large cash payouts. And that's why I know a lot of communities and a lot of support networks are really working on, as we said, you know, making sure that those who get the awards are, are supported that they don't then become targets for others to victimize them again in terms of, you know, whatever the next scheme is that comes up that somebody wants mm. them to, to spend their money on. So, you know, hopefully there's going to be some kind of provisions to, to help those, you know, to make sure that they don't just become targets. And, but I think this is going to be really key though, is, is that long-term support something provided so that it's not just a one-time tick box and then we've done our duty and walk away. It, it's about recognizing, you know, if Patty Haidu says that this is an acknowledgement of extreme harm and grief, then that doesn't just go away with one check. It requires long-term commitment to providing the mental health supports. And many have not had an opportunity so far in their lives and many communities don't have those kind of supports they need. So that's where we're really hoping to see and, and that's the kind of thing that will change circumstances in community if we have those commitments to providing the long t access to long-term mental health supports. I find your answer really interesting to the part about the money because, and it's not an Indigenous thing. I mean, we have seen endless stories of people who win lotteries and suddenly come into money and they have exactly. no idea what to do. Or athletes who suddenly become multimillionaires and by the end of their career they're completely broke. And I, I'd be fascinated to know if as this money is handed out, if there will also be guidance or something to, you know, I mean, for, it's $40,000 to a lot of people. They would go, it's 40,000. That's, you know, what's 40,000. I'm guessing to some of these people, that's probably more money they've ever had in their life. Well, exactly. I mean, for somebody who has literally never had anything, um, it, it is a huge amount and it does make them potential targets for those who, are looking to make an easy buck. So, you know, we're really hoping that there's supports there to ensure that they don't become victimized yet again. I'll tell you the one issue that I have with this settlement, and it's got nothing to do with the people who are going to get the money. It's got nothing to do with, um, with you. It's got nothing to do with the people who support this idea. It's, um, I don't see anything in here that holds the political class who was responsible for these decisions in any way responsible. This is going to be taxpayers' money that you and I and others are going to pay for. And I, I, as I said, I don't think under the circumstances too many people are going to grumble about that. But the people who made the decisions simply hand the money and carry on as if nothing ever happened. Should, should there have been some sort of different outcome or something to, to point to the politicians who made these decisions, made these bad choices that brought us here? Well, it's interesting you say that because you've kind of pointed out the fundamental flaw of the democratic system and the government protection systems where, you know, those who made these terrible decisions never are held really responsible, um, especially when it's a sort of historic wrongdoing. It's always the taxpayers who end up paying out. It's, it's the same complaint I had actually about the Catholic Church with their notion of fundraising uh, to provide restitution for the victims of the residential school. So that means, you know, your average little old granny in the neighborhood, the dollars to provide restitution for the victims of the residential school are going to be coming out of her pocket in some kind of fundraising when the Catholic Church is, you know, has huge assets. And 
So it, it really is a, a principle thing, absolutely. And I, I think you're right. Nobody's going to argue that these children should not get the restitution. I think in terms of changing the system, that's why the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling was so important, because even though it may not have any impact on those who made the bad decisions um, at the time, because they were sort of you know, cost-cutting measures, they were underfunding because they could get away with it, and because they didn't have to face the consequences, by creating real financial consequences for the government, for their lack of funding, for the harm that was caused by this kind of underfunding and these kind of discriminatory cuts, and means that this is part of a sort of larger systemic way of holding the government as an institution accountable for their behavior in ways that makes decision-making different for the bureaucrats that are implementing decisions right now, knowing that there is a potential that there could be huge financial consequences if you're not doing the right thing right now. And that's, that's what we're, I guess, sort of consoling ourselves with is that, yeah, while you can, there isn't a mechanism to go back and, and hold those who made those decisions in the past accountable. Hopefully these financial consequences are going to force different kinds of decisions and a different because it is a, a pretty significant financial consequence on the government for their inappropriate decisions and their inappropriate it, it, policies and practices. I'll take just issue with one thing you said there, though, and that is when you use the word historic, you know, sometimes we hear about historic decisions. And it's going back sure. two or three generations that we're apologizing for. We're talking this settlement is from 1991 until the present. There are people who have probably been in government the entire time. This is we're not talking about people who are dead or long gone. These are current governments that are now just spending our money to make good on the mistakes that they made. That, that And and I I haven't seen a single politician who's been pointed out and said, you're going to be knocked down from cabinet. You're going to be kicked out of caucus. Nothing, nothing ever seems to happen except pay our money. You know what? I would love to see that kind of change. I would love to see, you know, some sort of system change where those who implement decisions and it can be proven that they knew the negative, they knew the harm that this was going to cause. And, and even as you've said, over the last years of fighting it, yeah, at what point when you know there's harm being caused, if you continue to you continue down these directions, you continue with the underfunding, yeah, at what point is there a liability? At what point is there accountability for those who implement those decisions? And and you're right, this isn't historic. I mean this this is happening right now. And that's why this ruling, that's why the Canadian Human Rights Award was so important as a way of really making governments step up and 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 change their practices because without this this kind of stuff carries on for generation after generation after generation yeah it is um the the deal is is you know obviously hugely newsworthy the 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 way it's done though with with the people who ultimately i mean if, if you were a private sector person who made this kind of decision you were a president of a company and your company did something and there was a huge lawsuit probably somehow you're going to end up paying some kind of price it, it doesn't seem to ever happen with politicians at the election at the, at the ballot box i suppose but even then um not so much uh dr don lavelle harvard really appreciate the time as always thanks for doing this okay take care uh, yeah, you know what? On that point, uh, again, I mean, we can talk all day about whether you think that the $40 billion is the right amount, not the right amount, too much, too little, whatever else. We can talk about that. But it's just to those who made these decisions, and they're still going on, this, is, this, this settlement goes right up to the present. To those who made the decisions, there appears to be nothing. They just pay tax dollars and it's done. How does that make sense? How does that make sense? I mean, I'm not arguing that tax dollars should not necessarily be spent for something like this, but in any other walk of life, if you make decisions that lead to massive lawsuits or settlements or whatever, are there not consequences? I guess not here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you have kids in school, you probably have opinions. <laughs> I think that's probably a a safe position to take that if you are one of those whose children is now at home doing remote learning, uh, there are some kids for sure who like that. Uh, there are a lot of kids and a lot of parents who are uh, less enthused by the sounds of it with the return to remote learning, with the 
two week stand down of a return to class, two weeks roughly, a return down and a uh, stand down and a return to class while Omicron rages and soars and whatever other word you want to use. So what do we do with this? What, what, where, is there any way that we can find positives in this or is this all not so good? Well, let me bring in someone who knows how to answer those questions. Dr. Tracy Viancourt, Canada Research Chair in Mental Health and Violence Prevention in Schools, uh, Professor at Counseling Psychology at the University of Ottawa. She joins us now. Dr. Viancourt, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, no problem. So, uh, yes, we are back to remote. I think uh, it feels like Groundhog Day a little bit. Um, is there is there any good news here at all? I, I guess one of the good news is that we could hopefully curtail the spread of Omicron. I mean, this is the reason that kids are online. So I guess that would be my one good news line. All right. That leaves a lot of room open for bad news. <laughs> what, what, I mean, that's, um, we can't, I mean, obviously a lot of people are going to have a lot of different opinions and bad news could be everything from parents can't get to work because they have to look after their kids to a lot of other things. For, for you, what, what's the real bad news here of doing this again? Well, if it's short term, I can live with it to some extent, but I fear that it's not going to be two weeks. Um, my worry is that we've never prioritized children and youth during this pandemic, that the choices we have made are hurting kids. We have long known what needs to be done in order to improve school safety, to make them um, better during a pandemic, like improve ventilation, have teachers wear better masks, get everybody vaccinated, um, and the like. And yet nobody's heeding our advice. So our group, the Royal Society of Canada, wrote a comprehensive report we're not the only group in the world to have written comprehensive reports on children in schools. And yet, for some reason, our government is impervious to listening to experts on this matter. There is, uh, and certainly that point of view is, you know, is not, it, it's not a narrow view, not narrow group that would hold that opinion, that a lot of people would, would hold that view. About that, I mean, look, if there is some sympathy to be held for the provincial government here, and I don't know if people are going to hold any sympathy for the provincial government, there, there is the one argument that says if kids go back to school that there is a risk, you're risking their physical health, and if you keep them at home, you're risking their mental and emotional health, and so you can't win. Um, is that a fair argument, or is that not a fair argument? I mean, obviously, we're taking this measure to protect society, right? And we know that children probably won't be the ones who get sick from this, but they're going to be embedded in families that have um, people with compromised immunity, people who are older and could be at risk. Um, but my, my concern is maybe this one um, makes sense, given how widespread Omicron is. But our past school closures have not made sense to me. And the measures that we have taken in the interim have not made sense to me. So I tend to be in the middle of things on most, uh, like I'm not too much of an extremist, although I'm sounding quite extreme today. Um, but, you know, usually I reside in the middle on most uh, most topics. But here I just think that there's so many missed opportunities. We've made so many decisions that have harmed kids and um, we've ignored too much evidence on how to protect them that I find I can't be as positive as I have historically when I've spoken to you. What are, what are the challenges? That, what are the real challenges of remote learning for kids? Well, so, so the number one challenge, I'd say, like if we did a priority list, some children won't even log on, right? So, um, so we have kids who would have been in school and learning are not going to learn anything. And then if we go down that priority list, well, this might actually be quite equal. Um, we have children who will be learning at home alone because they're their parents are working um, in industries that haven't been shut down. So um, if you're a mother uh, working at a grocery store and you have a four-year-old and a six-year-old alone at home, that's not really tenable. And that's not good for the mother's mental health. And it's certainly not good for the children. Um, so, uh, you know, the list can, I can keep, do you want me to continue or? <laughs> sure. Why not? I, I mean, are there more? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um you know, there are kids who have notable learning disabilities. There are children who have physical disabilities. Um, there are children with other uh, forms of, uh, of disabilities that make it impossible to learn online. Um, 
we did quite a bit of research on uh, online learning. And what we found was, it's just one example, children who learned online during the pandemic, and this is, wasn't even in the context of school closures, felt they mattered less to their teacher. Hmm. And mattering is really important um, for mental health and well-being, for persisting um, at a task that is difficult, things like that. Um, so uh, we know that learning loss has been significant during the pandemic. So we talked about mental health at the beginning of the segment, but um, we can't ignore the fact that there are a lot of children who aren't learning as much during the pandemic. Tracy, I'm, I'm writing notes with what you're saying as fast as I can, because you're saying an awful <laughs> lot, a lot of good stuff. And I want to go through a bunch of these things because you are, you have touched on a lot of things that I find really interesting out of this. Um, let's start with maybe, I don't know if it's the least important, maybe it's probably not the least important, they're all important. Um, the idea back last, when, when this thing first started, when we first did our, was it March when, uh, March 13 or whatever, when things got shut down in school and pe- and kids went on remote the first time, uh, maybe it wasn't March 13, whatever the day was. Um, at that time, kids were told your marks are locked in. And so that was like a, a complete incentive for many kids, maybe most kids to say, oh, well, forget it then. I'm not getting engaged in this thing. If we were to do it differently. So if this time, if they were told, hey, you better be on there because you are going to fall behind and we're not going to wait around for you and it will affect your marks. Do you think that changes how remote learning works and how engaged kids would be in it. Cause I think we, we set it up for failure the first time, but is it all, is it naturally set up for failure? Um, I think it might be. Um, and some kids, for some kids, absolutely not. There's always going to be exceptions. And we talk about, we tend to talk about averages and yet within that average, there's a lot of heterogeneity. Um, so some children actually flourish, even um, they didn't need that incentive that your grades aren't going to change. They were intrinsically motivated School was not a great place for them, maybe because they were bullied or socially anxious. So we do know that it hasn't been uh, terrible for all children. But for most children, it has. And it has been related to their age. That makes them more, um, you know, vulnerable. So it's really hard if you have uh, a kindergarten student to keep them engaged. I've had a lot of texts from my friends today saying this is not even possible. My daughter is a conscientious 12th grader, and she can manage this quite well. But she doesn't have all the other stressors where her family's lost their job. Um, you know, all the, she can't access um, the internet reliably and the like. So I just think a lot of times when we think about who we're hearing from and w- and what we think is the truth for everybody is coming from a position of privilege. So my daughter's quite privileged. I'm quite privileged. So the pandemic hasn't hasn't been as difficult for our family as it has been for others. But I have worked in children's rights, in the area of children's rights for 20 years. And I know that my situation is not the situation of many children. And so my worry, again, is the kids who are sitting at home today with unreliable Internet, maybe they don't even have a device. Maybe the school hasn't dropped off anything for them to learn. Um, We have children in remote areas of Canada that can't even access the Internet. And we're saying that this is going to be good for them um, because... Because why? There's so much inequity within um, our decision that, of course, the kids who are most vulnerable are going to fall further and further behind. I, I was talking to a grade eight teacher the other day when we learned that this was going to happen. And one of the questions I had was because, you know, she had explained that this is really difficult as a teacher. And I said, can you require that the kids have the camera on so you can at least see them to make sure they're engaged? And she says, no, the rules don't allow me to demand that they do that. And I got thinking, like, are we also undercutting ourselves by not allowing teachers to impose rules that would make it possible to make sure that their students are paying attention? It seems that we're undercutting them in some ways. Uh, yes, but that decision makes sense to me because, again, when we talk about privilege, um, so some children can't turn on their camera because what you're going to see in the background is not something that should that we should be privileged to, right? And I'm not talking about abuse and neglect. Obviously, we should always, hopefully, we could be privileged to that so we can inter intervene. But um, it's interesting, um, you know, this idea. I hear this, and I've heard other people say what you have said, but I, I don't agree with kids having to turn on their camera. I don't think that it's the place of schools to be in the house in in the homes of children. Um, I think they have a right to privacy. Um, now that said, we need to figure this out quickly because, um, I'm hoping 
that this is going to be the last school shutdown. I'm hoping yes. it's only going to last for two weeks. And if so, then I can maybe grin and bear through this. Two weeks won't be, um, you know, it, it, it's it's manageable, I think, although it's difficult. Well, and when you say work through this or figure this out or whatever the word was you just used there, uh, let me. that's another question that a lot of people have had, and you've probably heard this yourself, and that is, most businesses, most industries over the last year and a half, two years have figured this out. They've figured out how to use Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever other thing you're going to use. They've, they've figured out through trial and error and usage and instruction, they've figured out how to make this work. And yet we keep hearing that classrooms and schools and, and educators are the ones that are having trouble with this. Why has it been so difficult for this particular area to get this to work when so many other businesses have figured it out and flourished? Because they're dealing with adults and we're dealing with children. So it's such a, it's not even a fair comparison. So of course I can manage my lab of 13 students who are all really bright and really uh, and mature and have a lot of resources. Try managing uh, 35-year-olds on technology. I'm not saying that five-year-olds aren't bright, but they certainly their brain development is quite different from an adult. Um, I could barely manage to keep the attention of two five-year-olds, let alone uh, 35-year-olds, in uh, where they have a variety of different backgrounds um, and they have many, many different distractors. So um, I, anytime my cat comes into a meeting, uh, it derails me right away. And I say this and my cat's screaming at the door right now to come in. Um, and that is just a dis- one distraction from an ad- that derails an adult's thinking. Now think about a five-year-old who is, you know, trying to do a boring class online and they've got a baby screaming in the background they have, uh, you know, a father preparing lunch or they're alone at home. How is that going to be tenable? And, and you know what? Look, your your example is bang on. I mean, if, if you're talking about kindergarten kids or even up to grade five or six or seven, uh, uh, you're right. I mean, I, I think most people would agree with you. Yet we've heard for years that remote learning is at some point going to be making up some of the curriculum, not just here in Ontario. We've heard this around the world. And, if, you know, is, is it different when you talk about high school? Is it a different thing or is it still, are the challenges still the same with older children in high school? The challenges are, are there, but they're a little bit different. So adolescence is a, is a time of low motivation. So it's really hard. If, I don't know if you have teenagers or... <laughs> Well, you probably, you know, do you have? I have, teens? I have. Okay. Are they teens? <laughs> they have been through that phase. We are okay, past so that phase, safely through the valley of the shadow of death. Yes. Okay. So getting them to do things is quite difficult because of the fact that the part of their brain that, that is responsible for motivation is under development, right? So um, their nucleus accumbens. So when you have a brain that's underdeveloped and it's hard to motivate them, we can only do so when it's very interesting for them. And so um, these lessons are not very interesting. And they're, they're not that interesting, especially when they're thrown together at the last minute, because up until a few days ago, kids were going to school and there was only going to be a two-day delay. And now, um, you know, we had to quickly adapt to be online and have all our lessons online. You also miss the nuances that make things exciting. So right now, you and I are engaged, but you're missing my hand gestures, like uh, the, you know, when I, when you say something and I smile and, and it validates what you just said, all those things that keep us engaged are also missing. So um, yeah, it's, it's different from five-year-olds, but, um, but it's still challenging. Uh, we only have a few seconds left here, but so does that mean that has this then been not just this two weeks that we're going to go into, but the entire remote learning exercise, has this been, an exercise, an experiment that says that down the road, remote learning is destined to be a failure if we try to implement this as some or part or all of a curriculum? If it has purpose, if it serves purpose, I think it's going to work, right? But we need to have the parameters around that purpose to be good and evidence-based. And we're not there yet. I'm just writing a report, another report on this major disruptive event, the pandemic and its um, implications for health policy and the like. And, um, my recommendation is we don't close schools unless it's 
like a com- like it's completely necessary. Um, I traveled around Europe not too long ago, a few months ago, um, and I was in five different countries. And everybody I talked to who were the, the top child development experts said the mistake they made in their country was to close schools. It has been, there's lots of different opinions, but that seems to be the one that a lot of people come back to, that uh, that, that, that closing schools is uh, has been a problem, and yet here we are. Dr. Tracy Viancourt, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is January 5th. It's not quite freezing cold outside. I just poked my head up from the basement studio here to look outside. It's kind of a little warmer than it has been for the past couple of days. Still, though, ice and snow and winter and the last thing most of us are probably thinking about is swimming in a lake at this moment. You might want to start if that's something that you're looking forward to doing this summer. Because over the past couple of years, as COVID has eviscerated the travel industry and people have decided to stay home for the most part because they can't go a lot of places. Cottage rentals have exploded. There have been unbelievable numbers and not just the numbers of rentals, how much you're going to pay for a cottage if you don't find a great deal. So yes, if, if cottages are on the agenda, if a cottage is on the agenda for this summer, um, this may be the time to get going, uh, to help us though with this and to tell me if uh, if I've completely missed anything, uh, Heather Bayer, uh, CEO of Cottage Link Rental Management, who joins us now. Heather, thank you for this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, thank you. I, I based everything I just said in the intro there on what I understand has happened over the past couple of years. Is it a fair assumption five days into the new year that the same thing is going to happen again this summer? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. We've had the, the craziest two years ever, um, two years of, of lockdowns from through the spring and then opening up in June to an absolute onslaught of uh, rental activity. And two, we've had two years of abs- fully booked summers. So you're absolutely right. If you want to get a cottage for this summer, the time to book is right now. And, and I look, I understand that it's asking you to be a little bit like Kreskin to predict what the future is going to hold, although you just you just did. But I, I can't imagine that there's anything coming up, even if COVID were to disappear. I can't imagine that there's anything coming up that's going to create a sudden disinterest in people going to cottage country. Uh, we, we've been looking at this for two years. You know, will international travel come back? Will it take all the people away that have discovered uh, the, the magic that's just beyond their doorstep? And... With what's going on right now, I, I think people are still really, really reluctant to make any decisions that go beyond uh, our borders. They're going to stay home. And certainly, if we look at the rental activity we've had leading up to Christmas and in this first week of the new year already, people are thinking about staying staying home, being domestic travelers yet again. And the, the government, in fact, are also uh, uh, encouraging this with the uh, staycation tax credit that they announced just before Christmas. Yeah, tell me about, because I, I was looking at that, and it sounds as though, if I'm reading it right, if you rent a cottage, you are eligible. You can get money for renting a cottage. Yes, if you, if you rent a cottage that, uh, that has HST applied, and that's really important, that you won't get any money back on your tax if you, if you rent a cottage that, uh, that, that you perhaps rent from a, from a private owner who doesn't charge HST. This will only apply if you can produce an HST uh, invoice or an HST statement. And, and if you do that, you can get up to $400 in, in a tax refund. Hmm. All right, let, let's go back to a word you used a moment ago. And, and again, talking about the idea that uh, I don't get a sense that suddenly there's going to be this massive drop-off. I'm not the expert, but I just don't see it. And, and you use the word discover people because they haven't traveled, mm-hmm. even if they'd never been cottage country people before. I, I, I just, I get the sense that once you've done the cottage and once you've had that experience that a lot of people, not everyone's going to love it, but a lot of people who may never have done it before are going to suddenly say, yeah, we're doing that again. Which means that even if there is international travel available again, it doesn't automatically mean that cottage country dries up. We we found uh, certainly from the past two two years that so many people have stayed close to home, whereas before they would have traveled further afield. 
And they're telling us afterwards we had no idea what was just in our backyard, that we just need to travel two or three hours. We don't have to wait at the airport and spend a day traveling. We can just get in the car at two o'clock in the afternoon and be at the cottage by 4.30 and in the water by 5. And and it's magic for many. And we've we've heard from so many rental guests that having experienced this, they're, they're just not going to go back to traveling elsewhere. I would say the people you're talking to don't have young kids if it took them from 4.30 to 5 to get into the water after arriving. Usually it's about three minutes. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. I, I'm, I'm thinking of the poor mom who's got to unpack the car. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. No, don't get in the lake. We don't want you having any problems before we get set. Um, one of the things this has done, though, and... I, for better or for worse, and I think if you're a an owner of a cottage, it's for better. I think if you're a renter, it's probably a little bit for worse. But this enormous demand has has led to some pretty extraordinary price increases for rentals. I mean, our, our family has rented cottages for years, <laughs> and the cost to rent the place in the last few years, boy, the, it has gone up. It it has, and, and I can't deny that um, rental prices rocketed. Uh, in 2020, and they continue to rise in 2021. The, what, what's behind this is, is multi, there's multiple things behind it. Um, people who have just bought properties have actually paid a, a lot more for them than they would have done in 2018 or 2019. Uh, house prices rose dramatically. So anybody that is buying a property and going into the rental market now is going to have to charge more to actually get a decent return uh, on that investment. Um, demand, of course, that demand is naturally going to send prices higher. And then the, there are other um, elements such as the cost of cleaning. Uh, cle- a cottage has to be cleaned at the end of each stay. And of course, with the COVID cleaning protocols, there's a lot more involved. And a cleaner will go into a property and now spend four or five hours cleaning even a modest size property and just hiring somebody as anybody who owns the cottage will know is one of the most difficult things to do to find somebody reliable who's going to come in at the end of every every rental and do a complete covid clean and and leave the place in pristine condition they can actually charge pretty much what they want and we've Hmm. seen prices in in the range of 60 to 70 dollars an hour Wow. So all these wow. things are being added on to the <clears throat> rental rate. And then, and then you know, people are wanting unlimited Wi-Fi, which costs money. They want um, AC, so, so owners are putting in AC, and, of course, that is expensive. So all these things have contributed to a you know, pretty significant rise in uh, rental rates. That's a great thing you just mentioned because um, many, many, many years ago, our family owned a cottage up in the Ottawa Valley. When my grandfather passed away years and years ago, we sold it. We just couldn't keep it up. It was too far. But that cottage was a rustic place where we had mismatched cutlery and pl- flatware and mm-hmm. plates and everything. And and if you drag some sand inside of it, we didn't try to make it dirty. But if you know, if you came off the beach and there was some sand, it was you know, whatever. Now, most of these places, when you look online, you're not looking at rustic cottages as you might have thought of them once upon a time. These are these are homes, as you say, with the Wi-Fi and everything else, but these are like beautiful homes. They're not shacks. Yeah, I've, I've been in this business 25 years now, Scott, and have just seen just such a dramatic change over that time. And I, I remember when, a, when Grandma's old throw was, was perfectly okay and, yep, and, the, yep. and grandma's and, and grandma's old mattress as well which has probably been around for 30 years before before the owners started renting but now expectations are higher uh, guests want they, they want high-end everything and and owners are coming into the market and wanting to deliver what these uh, higher standards are asking uh, of them so we, we get the occasional guest who says, I'll, I'll, ha- I'll be happy to take rustic, but it doesn't really exist anymore. The owners that are buying now, I mean, you talk about the cost that they have to pay just to rent probably, but also in the last few years, the prices, the market, the real estate market, forget the rental market, the real estate market in cottage country, anyone who's looked online at realtor.ca or whatever, and it, you, you, really a place in Bob Cajun is worth more than a place in Toronto in some case. I mean, it's, it's incredible. 
I got to believe that a bunch of the people who have bought these places couldn't really afford them by themselves on their own. And the plan always was we're going to buy it and rent it to bring in some of the money. So it has, it has led to a surge in the number of places that are available too. In, indeed. Um, the in- inventory is the highest we've, we've ever seen. Uh, as a rental management company, we hear from an average of two to three owners every single day and have done for the past sort of four or five months. Uh, these are owners who who want to explore the idea of renting out. So they are they are coming into this with rental as part of their investment strategy. Um, whereas years ago it was oh yeah we'll just rent a couple of weeks in the summer when we're not using it. Now we have owners who are saying I'm giving up the entire summer for rental and I'll just use it in June and September. So in a few years time when we retire we will be able to we'll be able to spend that time at the cottage then. So, so yes, you know, rental is, is a very strong part of their strategy uh, in terms of, of buying and investing in a cottage. How many of the cottage owners that you deal with with your business had no intention of renting and never did rent before mm-hmm. until the last few years and then all of a sudden looked at what you could get for a rental and went, wait a second, I got to get a piece of this action. How can I not rent it out for a few weeks to bring in four, five, six, ten thousand dollars $10,000? Well, I think, you know, a number of years ago, let's say eight or ten years ago, uh, an owner might come to us and say, hey, this is a, this is a good idea, I think. You know, I want to, I want to fund uh, a renovation. Um, um, but, but now the owners who haven't rented in the past are absolutely looking at those prices and thinking, well, why would I ever leave it empty if I'm not using it for for parts of the summer or, you know, certainly the, the rest of the year too, because we're seeing many, many more properties coming to us that are year round, you know, they're open year round. And we, we try and get uh, as many people as possible to appreciate cottage country out of July and August. You know, it's beautiful in September and October and May and June as well. And even in the winter, if we were allowed to rent right now, which we're not. <laughs> Is this the new normal now? I mean, do you believe that this is sustainable and not only the the amount of cottages that are for rent, but the prices that you can get for them? Is this going to be where we are indefinitely? I, I think we have to use a, a, a good amount of caution at the moment. And this is something that we're telling uh, our owners when they come in and say, hey, I, I, I can see that I can get 8000 a year for this cottage. And this is a property that perhaps we would have would have fetched 3000 a year, a, a week, 3000 a week, um, three years ago. Um, but we have to approach it with this element of caution that this may be a bubble that will burst when things go back to some semblance of normality and people want to start traveling again. Uh, and then we will find that this mass of inventory on the market is is going to cause some saturation. Um, and the the level of competitiveness that has been around for many, many years will come back again. And that may come that 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 may come back to bite some of those who paid a lot for a property and had the the idea that uh, that it, this would be sustainable forever. i'm I'm an optimist, but i <laughs> I have this. This disconcern over a high level of optimism over prices maintaining over the next sort of two or three years. I, I have to ask you this: um, Do the people who live in cottage country all the time and don't necessarily rent, do they love the idea that this has happened and that the market has become so hot, or do they just bristle at all of us yahoos coming up from the city and going crazy when we get up north and, and turning it into Partyville? There is, there's, there's a couple of sides to this, Scott. There's, there's a level of intolerance that's creeping in with, um, with the owners who've never had any intention of renting and they've just bought the properties to retire to. And you've got to look at cottage country now, which is becoming more, more and more of a retirement area rather than just a, a vacation, uh, a vacation spot. Um, so there, there is some element of the not in my backyard movement going on. Uh, we're, we're seeing this in restrictions and uh, threats of legislation popping up around municipalities where they're looking at um, bans on cottage rental or at least some wow. some limits on the amount of times people can rent out. 
Uh, I'm part of an organization called the Ontario Cottage Rental Managers Association. And we, as, as a group, we are actively promoting uh, responsible rental. So we train or teach owners how to rent responsibly so that we don't bring in the, as, as you call them, yahoos into cottage country. We help owners educate their guests on how to behave responsibly in cottage country. You know, the little things like, you know, how people don't know, like how noise carries across the water and that you don't have a domestic on the dock at nine o'clock in the morning because the whole lake will hear it. Um, <laughs> Preferably no time of the day for a domestic, but yes, I get your point for sure. Um, we, we have to run, unfortunately, just one last thing, because as I say, we started this by talking about if you want to rent a cottage, it sounds probably a little loopy to a lot of people, but you kind of have to be thinking about it now or else you're, the, the amount that are available goes way down. I, I know that, you know, there are a lot of places begin their rental season, begin taking rent, uh, rentals in beginning of January. So we're right there. But how do you know, if you've not done this before, how can you be sure if you go online that you're not going to get ripped off, that you're renting a place from someone who's responsible, that you're going to get there and the place looks like it does, or there's not someone else in there? How do you know you're not going to end up in a bad situation? Yeah, a couple of things. Do do your due diligence. And certainly if you rent through any of the really reputable rental management agencies, you can be completely confident that that the property you've booked is going to exist. Uh, secondly, uh, never wire money. Uh, always, uh, if you can, um, uh, pay by credit card. And if uh, and, and and talk to the owner. If you're going to book through a an independent owner. Get them on the phone and talk to them. Ask them about the property. A scammer doesn't know um, much about the property. They've just listed a listing from from another site. So talk to the owner. Ask your questions. Um, but in in general, you know, make sure you feel confident that uh, that the person you're dealing with uh, has really good knowledge of the property, and and you shouldn't go wrong. That is Heather Bayer, CEO of Cottage Link Rental Management. You can probably find your site online too. Do you have a, you have a website? I assume. Yeah, it's very simple. It's clrm.ca. That's the initials of Cottage Link Rental Management.ca, and and I'm more than happy to talk to anybody, owners and guests alike, and tell them how wonderful Cottage Country is going to be this summer. <laughs> Heather Bayer, thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Uh, there you go. If, uh, if you are thinking, well, I didn't do a trip this winter or I'm not doing a trip or whatever else. And you know, I've got some travel money that I was going to spend that I haven't spent and I want to do something. You may want to, uh, you may want to think about a cottage. Just please wait till after we book ours. So, (laughs) so so we're not locked out. That's how, that's how competitive and crazy it has been the last number of years. They, they go quickly. That's why we wanted to have Heather on here. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.